Trigger warning. The following episode contains references to Gore Human suffering Death Factual inaccuracies Several entitled people making light of all these things. If any of the aforementioned topics cause you discomfort, you may want to listen to a different episode. A group of misfit teens with the power to turn into germs in my new young adult series, Animorcules. I'm Adam. The 1700s, truly the dark souls of medical history. I'm Andy. Try our list-in guarantee. Limbs off in 30 seconds or your money back. I'm Kelly. This new substance removes all pain and lets you taste colors. Or so my chickens told me. I'm Sean, and this is Acid Pop. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Today, we're going to be talking about operating theaters. Uh, so... Like a theater that's currently in operation, or... Mm-hmm. Is the theater sick? Does it have appendicitis? Oh, they were sick. <laughs> Is it a Broadway production of the game Operation? <laughs> and- Yay! <laughs> oh, that's when the show ends. I yeah. paid $50 for this ticket. <laughs> so Latin is being cliched again today. Operation comes from Latin operatus, meaning to work or toil. And theater is from Latin theatrus, meaning a playhouse. So, Operatus Theatrus. <laughs> We've got another Harry Potter spell here. Yeah. Presto. And tomophobia is the fear of surgery. Tomos is Greek to cut, which we learned about in our accidental amputations episode, which is inevitable in surgery, really. It's also fear of stabbing. <laughs> you can't just use, like, positive energy to remove the <laughs> problem limb. Well, that wouldn't... Well, maybe. <laughs> So the time period we'll be discussing today is from the late 1700s up through the early 1900s. So basically the Victorian era. In that time, surgery was taking some very dark turns, which thankfully came around towards the end. I think you mean brave turns. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) These heroic scientists and doctors. (laughs) But this is a time when the night was truly at its darkest before the dawn. Then we're going to talk about that period. So we're on to our acid pop quiz. True or false? Surgeons during the Victorian era were highly respected. False. They were known as butchers. <laughs> Go to the barber. <laughs> Damn teeth out and he'll stitch me up. I don't know. I'm going to say true. Why else go into it? Yeah. Well, this is false. For the purposes of this episode, during this time, there were two categories, physicians and surgeons. Physicians were doctors that you went and saw when you weren't feeling so hot, and they would generally make you feel better, often due more to luck and the body's ability to deal with most problems rather than any skill on the physician's part, but hey. Also cocaine. (laughs) Yeah. Surgeons, however, were who you went to see when you were poor, desperate, and on the verge of death. Being a surgeon was more of a trade than a career, and people really didn't go see them unless they were out of options. Hmm. So true or false, the introduction of anesthetics immediately improved the outcome of surgeries. That's going to be false. (laughs) Oh, you mean they can't feel it when I cut them all to ribbons? (laughs) He looks like you've really, really knocked him out. He looks dead. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say false just because I know they also killed people with the anesthetics at that point. Yeah. Yeah, not counting that, this is still false. 
the ability of surgeons to slice away at patients without the irritating distraction of cries of anguish <laughs> led them to try things they otherwise wouldn't and take longer at it. No one could object. All yeah. the pressure is gone. Yeah. But unfortunately, the spreading trend of anesthetics predated the use of antiseptics by a few decades. <laughs> so more surgeries with wounds open for longer led to more fatalities, not less. But less complainers. <laughs> Got rid of all those whiners. <laughs> if they never wake up, they never get to complain. So we're on to fill in the blank. What was a good length of time for a surgery to take during this period? I mean, like good for the patient or good for the doctor? Both. See, the deal is there was a lot of those doctors that were like, I'm a speed surgeon. Yeah, like, <laughs> well, like the quicker, the better, because then they're not going to bleed out as much. Well, and you get to mm -hmm. get to more patients and yeah. you make more money. Let's, oh. say, <laughs> let's say the fast. 15 minutes. Okay. Uh, 30 minutes. We'll say an hour. Okay. Uh, for the majority of this time, anesthetics weren't around due to the dangers of shock, infection, and not least your patient throwing in the towel and literally running out of the theater. <laughs> surgery had to be done fast. You didn't tie him down? <laughs> well, generally, surgeries from the first cut to the last stitch were completed in less than two minutes. Ooh, oh, dang. Wow. Yeah. They just grab something and pull it out and call it good. <laughs> yeah, it's open like, this looks like something. Oh, the doctor stitched his hand to my wound. <laughs> I think we left some scissors in there. <laughs> I don't want to get in there and find out. You can keep those. What was the mortality rate of surgery at this time? 80%. Now, when you say 80%, you mean 80% lived or died? Died. Okay. Let's, let's do a 65% death rate. 85% died. Okay. A little high. It varied a bit depending on where you were, but it was about 25%. Oh, so that's much better. <laughs> yeah, I see. You had a one in four chance of going into <laughs> surgery and not making it out alive. So during this time, if the surgeons visited their post-surgery patients and saw blank, they took it as a good sign that the healing process was coming along nicely. Maggots. Pus. <laughs> uh, I don't know, vomit or diarrhea? <laughs> Kelly got it. If they look around your wound and saw pus oozing out of it, they knew they had done a good job. Good, healthy pus. That, yep. I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> this just goes to show how gross everything was then. <laughs> You're oozing nicely here. <laughs> no, the Victorian area. Think of all the romance. Hmm. That's the evil seeping out of your body. <laughs> So pus means you have an infection. That's what it means. But hey, it means your body is fighting the infection, yeah. which means you ain't dead, which is a stupendous <laughs> news as far as the surgeon is concerned. You're not dead. <laughs> it appears your body still has the will to live. <laughs> I thought I'd removed that. So in 1843, St. Bartholomew's Hospital started one of the first practical surgeon training programs. Students would watch operations in the theater and practice on cadavers. In the first 15 years or so of the new program, how many students died? Students? Mm-hmm. Ooh. Were there zombies first, involved? <laughs> first 15 years. Let's say five. That's that's three a year. 30. Uh, no, Wait. it's 15, 15 years. 15, uh, 15 years? So that'd be one every three years, but that's fine. <laughs> oh, God, I have a mass final tomorrow. <laughs> Solve this word problem, Mandy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to stick with 30, I guess. Mm, 60. Hmm. Oh, Adam's close without going over. About 41 students died, so two or three a year. Stop it. <laughs> this mostly happened when they were practicing on cadavers and gave themselves a little nick on the hand, which gave them an incurable infection. And occasionally when the cadaver wasn't actually dead and got angry. <laughs> hey, buddy. So we're on to our terms. 
In operating theaters, what did it mean when people shouted, heads, heads? Uh, the doctors were flipping a coin to see if he would live or not. <laughs> <laughs> Need a four-sided coin. <laughs> the doctor was, was juggling chainsaws, and they, they wanted to show that the people were changing what body part they wanted it to be above. Whoopsie-daisy. <laughs> They're spinning the wheel. Oh, I kind of like the, the coin flip idea. <laughs> I think they were flipping a coin to decide who got to do the operating. Ooh. Yes, with our lucky member of our audience, come on down. <laughs> I just I picture like some sort of sports commentator watching the whole proceeding. <laughs> yeah, he's calling the coin flip in the air. <laughs> oh, you don't like to see that. He's going to be on the receiving end of surgery. Today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like the school. So it sounds exciting, but this was just what people in the back shouted when people in the front got too excited and stood up, blocking the view with their heads. (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) I have to to tell the people watching to calm down. They're getting their popcorn in the corpse. (laughs) (laughs) So who was Big Jackie? Uh, Was Big Jackie a person? Why are you not telling us that? No clues. Big Jackie was the large Doberman that they fed the extra parts to. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Big Jackie was the really big knife they used for autopsies. Ooh. Here comes Big Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> it's the last chance to see if you're alive or not. <laughs> All Australian surgeons. <laughs> I think Big Jackie was also some sort of tool, but I'm, I'm picturing like a, a rib cracking machine. Ooh. Really get in there. <laughs> no, Big Jackie was death. Oh. oh. So you did not want to visit from Big Jackie. Oh, no. <laughs> Those charming British phrases. <laughs> Why is death named Jackie in this scenario? <laughs> I really like that. Probably some cockney thing. So what was an animalcule? Animalcule? Yeah, it's kind of hard to say. It's like a molecule. One, one word. word? Yep, one word. Oh. Uh, That's what they'd call tumor. It was something they got from an animal and it grew in there and they had to cut it out. <laughs> Looked like a crab. Mm. <laughs> it's a crab tumor. That's like when they would try to they would try to give you a blood transfusion, but it was from like a goat or something. <laughs> Had to get all those animal cues through, yeah. My answer was going to be similar to that, and now I I have a blank. <laughs> you can oh. use mine. I was going to say that's when they like do a transplant, but they use like a dog's kidney or something. <laughs> animal cue, also the son of Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> so surgeons were really frustrated with how often people got sick and died during surgery. This job would be way easier if it weren't for all the sick people. <laughs> At this time, it was all about the miasma, but some surgeons had noticed that infections could still happen even in the sweetest smelling hospitals. (laughs) Doesn't make any sense. (laughs) So while they still believed in miasma, they thought there must be another cause. One of these suspects was animalcules, or organisms too small to see. We call those germs. No. I just, I picture them drawing their little diagrams and it's like tiny tigers running through the air. (laughs) Tiny tiger, <laughs> you're causing so much pus in this poor man's leg. <laughs> and that concludes our acid pop quiz. So let's talk about operating theaters. But before we do, we need a bit of history to get to why they were a thing. For the most part, we'll be talking about England during this time. So let's say you're alive at this time and you want to be a doctor. Well, you're going to need an education, but there aren't videos, pictures, or practice simulates. What you need to learn about human bodies is a human body. I have one of those. (laughs) Well, got one? Good. (laughs) But those were in short supply. At the time, people believed that anything that happened to your body happened to your soul. So you're dead and hanging out in heaven when all of a sudden your chest pops open and your organs start to march out. (laughs) Really embarrassing on your first day. (laughs) 
To stop this, people very much insisted that their bodies be preserved more or less how they were when they died. But doctors in training needed to learn, so they needed cadavers. To try and throw them a bone, har har, the British government passed the Murder Act in 1752. This stated that condemned murderers' bodies would be donated to medical schools, so while they were suffering in hell, their bits would start to fall off. (laughs) (laughs) Call it a deterrent. Just helping out the devil. Yeah. So that helped a bit, but there was still far more medical students than condemned murderers, so bodies were needed. So they started paying people to kill other people. It's kind of true. Oh, yeah, so <laughs> This was when body snatching was big business. So Burke and Hare were running around manufacturing accidental deaths, and medical schools conducted many shady deals out the back for bodies. This helped a bit more, but still wasn't enough. Not to mention that should anyone involved get caught, it was the death sentence or serious jail time for everyone involved. And then you'd be the benefit is then you get their body, and so you know you're feeding into the system. That is actually very true. Yes. (laughs) In 1832, after 20 years of lobbying, the government passed a second bill called the Anatomy Act. This said that if someone died and no one claimed them, their body would go to a licensed cadaver handler at a medical school. So I guess they took a course on how to respect a dead body. (laughs) Well, my job title would be cadaver wrangler. (laughs) Cadaver wrangler, yes. (laughs) And that person would oversee the respectful dissection of said body. So this provided a relatively steady flow of bodies, but truth be told, there still wasn't enough to go around. Could you imagine if you're a student in this school and one of your buddies is, you know, buying corpses out the back (laughs) or on the side and, you know, gets a little... Hey, buddy, want to buy a corpse? A little too into the dark side of things. He gets arrested, put to death, and then the next day your new cadaver is your buddy. (laughs) Oh, hey, Joe. Oh. Like, well, I got to (laughs) learn. High five there, pal. Yeah, there we go. He always wanted us to have more bodies. (laughs) So around 1800, some doctors got a brilliant idea. What if they set up sort of an amphitheater and performed medical procedures in them? And sold tickets. (laughs) Well, yep. Then medical students could get firsthand experience. And hey, as we've learned from damn near every society ever, people love watching other people get sliced apart. Mm -hmm. So we could sell some tickets and make a few bucks. And think of the concessions. Hot dogs. Peanuts. Get your peanuts. Dippin' Dots. Ice cream of the future. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to make a ginger dead man joke. I think the patient should get a cut of the sales. (laughs) Yeah. And thus the operating theater was born. Typically, there was an operating table, then a few feet, or about a meter, and then tiered rows for viewing. The first two rows were reserved for medical students and professionals, but the rest of the theater was available to willing patrons. But that doesn't paint the whole picture. In a time before electricity, these theaters were lit with candles or maybe gas lanterns. They were dark and spooky. This was well before the germ theory was even conceived, let alone accepted, so nothing was cleaned. Not the table, not the floor covered in sawdust soaked up with blood, pus, and vomit, and certainly not the surgeon or his tools. Sounds like a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, he looked more like the antagonist of a horror movie than a medical professional. Hi, I'm Dr. Giggles. (laughs) (laughs) Operating theaters only lit by candles and lightning flashes. (laughs) So at this time, surgery pretty much meant amputation. If something was wrong with your torso, a lawyer would just help you fill out your will. (laughs) If something was seriously wrong with an appendage, just about the only option available was to lop it off. 
So you've got, say, an infected cut or a persistent deep ache, or you broke a bone that's now sticking through your flesh, and now you're in an operating theater awaiting any help you can get. This is my big acting break. <laughs> the surgeon walks in with two burly henchmen on either side. <laughs> it's never a good sign when they call them henchmen. <laughs> I'd like you to introduce you to my hench uh, assistants. <laughs> Later renamed to nurses. <laughs> <laughs> he addresses the audience with a rundown of the evening's events, but ignores you completely. After his speech, one of his henchmen positions a bucket filled with sawdust to receive the offending limb. <laughs> then both henchmen grab you and hold you down like you owe the surgeon money. <laughs> <laughs> The surgeon reaches into a toolbox dyed red with the blood of his former patients and pulls out a selection of cutting tools, each more caked with blood and rust than the last. Oh, he's going with the nine iron. <laughs> <laughs> he then starts to cut with vigor. Surgeons didn't know why so many patients died after being sliced open with a pus-encrusted saw, but they <laughs> did know that the odds were better the faster they moved. So the surgeon slices you to the bone with a sharp little knife, then slides around the bone to detach all the flesh. <laughs> then he reaches for a blade with teeth. He puts his back into it and hacks through the bone in seconds. Oh, I'm sorry, a blade made of teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and the limb slides into the sawdust-filled bucket with an inappropriate floofing sound. <laughs> <laughs> then he throws on a tourniquet, clamps off blood vessels, stitches the whole mess together, all while you scream and scream <laughs> and scream. Cauterized the whole thing with the cigar he was smoking while he was doing the whole thing. <laughs> <Heck>, silence. <laughs> At this point, you'll probably want to pass out. Then it's off to the hospital to see if you're one of the lucky one in four patients that dies of this whole ordeal. And that was more or less how surgery went down in the 1800s. A delightful. Deglove the leg, please. <laughs> yeah. Today we call those horror movies. <laughs> People pay to see those, too. <laughs> I'm impressed by how fast they can work when someone's squirming. I can barely get the baby's diaper changed <laughs> these days. What's the point of the henchmen? Surely they've learned how to tie people down at this point. I don't know. And it lacks that personal touch. <laughs> it's a caring profession. Why have leather belts when I got Tweedledee and Tweedledum here? <laughs> you trying to put these men out of work? <laughs> belts are taking our jobs. <laughs> Foreign French belts. <laughs> Big belt coming in here. So why would you ever step into one of these Silent Hill-esque torture chambers? I couldn't step. I was carried. My leg was broken. <laughs> well, if you were rich, a doctor would come to your home and help you there. He would be nicely dressed, so somewhat clean, and the odds of catching an infection from your own house was significantly lower. If you were poor, and at this time there were only two classes, you went to the hospital. At this time, hospitals were your best hope, but they were a sad and pathetic hope. Like, maybe all these threatening letters from debt collectors are some sort of elaborate prank kind of hope. <laughs> hospitals were run by the government, and they got to decide who was accepted in and who was not. And yes, that meant before they ever got to see any sort of medical professional. They had to go through the hospital bouncer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. So the hospitals only accepted new patients one day a week. Those lucky few that got in were put in two categories. Incurables, 
or people with persistent physical maladies, and lunatics for people with mental maladies. And we'll have to amputate the brain. I feel like I'm curable, though. Oh, he's a lunatic. <laughs> Look how crazy he is. <laughs> but at least that's a quick form to fill out. Yeah, check I feel the like box. optimistic about the surgery. Obviously a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the operating theater? <laughs> and several hospitals had a policy of not accepting the same person twice for the same disorder. So if the doc didn't fix it, tough luck. People would camp out for days trying to be admitted, and once they were, the hospitals were staffed by filthy, unfeeling doctors. Some sort of double jeopardy on maladies. Yeah. I was going to say it's like Black Friday for leg clopping. <laughs> the only thing dirtier than the doctors were the hospitals. At one hospital from a time just before the Victorian era, the highest paid staff member was the chief bug catcher, who tried to keep the fleas, lice, and maggots to a minimum. Well, it's, a, it's an important job. Uh, yes. Maggots are easier to catch than most. <laughs> in 1825, at St. George's Hospital in London, some folks went to visit a family member resting up in the hospital after having a broken bone set. They lifted his soggy sheets to find maggots squirming and mushrooms sprouting in the mattress. Ah, those are complimentary. <laughs> yeah, those mushrooms, those mushrooms are what's keeping him alive. <laughs> the patient was like, isn't that normal? Everyone else on this floor has those. <laughs> As a result, hospitals lived in dread of the outbreak of the Big Four. These were erysipelas, gangrene, septicemia, and pyemia. Erysipelas is a staph infection that causes fevers, vomiting, and big nasty rashes all over the body. Gangrene has a few different causes, but most of the time a wound would get infected and everything around the wound would die, leaving a goopy pus filled with mess for the bacteria to grow healthy and strong in. <sighs> Septicemia is a blood infection that causes clots in the blood, which can lead to low or high blood pressure, which can lead to, for example, certain limbs not getting enough blood and starting to rot off. And pyemia is another blood infection, though this one is caused by a staph infection in the blood that fills your veins with pus until the blood doesn't flow anymore. Oh, good fun. Yes. <laughs> if there was an outbreak of the big four in a hospital, they would spread and spread and frequently be fatal. Except pyemia, which was always fatal. I... I'm ill now. <laughs> Thank you. But don't take me to a hospital. Don't chop up that corpse. He's going to squirt marshmallow fluff <laughs> oh, like God. the puff marshmallow man. It's like a water balloon just ready to pop. So as discussed in our unappreciated genius episode, our friend Ignaz Semmelweis pointed out that under these conditions, women died giving birth a lot. In fact, there were about 3,000 deaths annually from childbirth, or roughly one out of every 210 births. Which those ain't great odds. Nope. So, if it was down to going to one of these nightmare institutions or going to an operating theater, many people chose the operating theater. Yeah, you're in and out in two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least I'll know if I'm going to die quickly. Yeah. That is, unless you've already gone to the hospital and they turned you away. Then your only option was the operating theater. I can't begin to describe how desperately people wanted this to work and how horrible the things they wanted so desperately was. They were shivering in pain and not unreasonably afraid for their lives in these stinky, ill-lit basements. 
All around you, people were laughing, talking about their day, and impatiently looking at the clock waiting for the show to start. A surgeon would come in whose two most important lessons in school were, one, how to ignore the little things like cries of anguish and pleas for help from your patients, <laughs> and two, never clean your tools or clothes. You are then held down, and a part of you is hacked off with all the finesse of a blind Parkinson sufferer. Then, provided you didn't die of shock right there, you were wheeled to the closest hospital to recover in a bed stained with blood, pus, and shit from the last patient who died in it. Possibly also mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry, we cleaned off the mushrooms. <laughs> Clearly, things needed to change. The first thing that had to go was all the irritating screaming. <laughs> That's why we brought the mallet. <laughs> We also got rid of children. I, it was a bad idea. <laughs> In the mid-1800s, there were two advances on this front. The first was chloroform. Now, people figured out it could knock out animals in the early 1800s, but it wasn't until 1847 that James Young Simpson decided to try it out on humans. An interesting story. First, early in his career, Dr. Simpson went to an operating theater to watch a mastectomy, or the removal of the breast. In the face of all the screaming and gore, he ran out of the theater, threw up, and proclaimed, I will become an accountant. <laughs> Good man. He got over it, though, and he did become a doctor. He really thought the whole process was awful, though, so he was desperately searching for an anesthetic. To do so, Simpson and two assistants would get together in the evening, pick out a chemical, and huff it to see what happened. <laughs> What a brave time in science. Oh, I'm a doctor, man. <laughs> Everyone said he threw the best parties. <laughs> they got to chloroform and were dancing around and giggling until they passed out. Upon regaining consciousness, Simpson cried, Eureka! Once his hangover was gone, he tried it on his niece. <laughs> she took a big huff, smiled up at him, said, I'm an angel, and passed out. Simpson knew he had a winner. He started using it during labor to help pregnant women. It spread from there to the rest of the medical community. That's great, and chloroform can indeed knock someone out enough to perform surgery on them. The trouble is, inhaling chloroform makes you kind of loopy, then at some point you pass out. A very small amount more of chloroform from passing out will kill you. Ah, ah yes. <laughs> And where those lines are changes from person to person, but they're always really close together. The, doc the doctors were playing those odds anyways. <laughs> I suppose he should be very thankful that his niece didn't actually become an angel. Yeah, right? Yeah. Look, I would still take it. Yeah. If I was walking in there, be like, yep, like this increases your odds of death. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already at 25%. How high could they go? Let's make it an even 50. Give me the drugs. <laughs> Give me the coin. So the other anesthetic was ether. This one had a longer history. In 1525, Paracelsus figured out that he could knock out chickens with it. But he claims he what never... What was Paracelsus doing? <laughs> All kinds of weird stuff. Naming himself something that meant better than Celsius? <laughs> <laughs> but he claims he never tried it out on humans, let alone himself. Wait. Yeah, I say claims because he noted it quiets all suffering without any harm and relieves all pain and quenches all fevers and prevents complications in all disease. Or at least that's what my chickens told me it did. <laughs> Parentheses in chickens. <laughs> this was a neat party trick, but it didn't really get any further until 1842. Paracelsus throws the best parties. Have you seen him knock out those chickens? <laughs> 
a dentist named William Clark etherized a patient to extract a tooth. It went great, but being the thorough and careful doctor that he was, he decided to run lots of tests and to ease into the use of ether. A few years later, another dentist named William Morton also extracted a tooth using ether and proceeded to run around saying things like, I conquered pain. I'm the greatest doctor ever. Praise me. Praise me. <laughs> so he got all the credit. Now, ether is also great, but it had two problems. First, while you don't often die from ether directly, it can make you vomit, which, as we learned in our vomit episode, is a bad thing to do while you're asleep. Mm-hmm. Second, it's explosively flammable. Which was kind of dangerous in an operating theater lit by candles and gas lanterns. <laughs> and all the smoking doctors. Yeah. You don't get as much mana back with regular ether. <laughs> Am I correct that it was also addictive? Uh, I'm not sure. I didn't see that, but that doesn't mean it's not. I seem to remember something about like nurses huffing yeah, I think ether. I've heard of ether the- addicts before. I don't know how addictive it is, but. There definitely are ether parties that happened at the time. It was a uh, like a party recreational drug before it was an anesthetic, but I don't know if it was addictive. That's probably not a path many drugs take. Yeah, but still, ether was a winner. It was treated with skepticism in England until it was tried out by Dr. Robert Liston, the Chuck Norris of Victorian surgery. <laughs> so he said, cunt. <laughs> at six feet two inches tall or 188 centimeters he was apparently so strong that he refused the use of tourniquets instead choosing to squeeze the limb between his left forearm and bicep <laughs> cutting off all blood flow so he could amputate one-handed oh my <laughs> oh it's not a scalpel <laughs> so mighty was he that during one surgery his patient ran for it mid-procedure and locked themselves in a closet <laughs> Liston ripped the door off and dragged the patient back to the theater and finished the surgery. He, come, he comes into the theater with pyrotechnic displays and some sort of theme song. Get out here, little man. <laughs> Rips off his doctor sleeves. You're next on the Liston. <laughs> While most surgeons tried to get their procedures under two minutes, Liston hovered around 30 seconds. In fact, his catchphrase as he entered the theater was, time me, gentlemen, time me. (laughs) If you have a catchphrase, (laughs) then you're really cool. You're in the wrong profession. (laughs) I mean, you say that, but actually, Liston was a pretty great guy. So... While most surgeons had a patient mortality rate of one in four, Liston's was about one in seven on account of being so damn fast. And handsome. (laughs) (laughs) There are stories about Liston and his speed. On one occasion, he was amputating at the hip and accidentally cut a nut off. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) Got a little carried away there. In another, he was cutting so fast and freaky that he sliced off three fingers of one of his assistants, then slashed the coat of an innocent bystander. Yeah, great guy. (laughs) The bystander died of fright on the spot. (laughs) This is the guy, okay. (laughs) And the assistant and patient died of infections, making it the only surgery in history with a 300% mortality rate. You shouldn't be conducting surgery like a conductor. Yeah. Also, get your hands out of the way. (laughs) So Liston was a force to be reckoned with, but clearly a force for good. He sought out patients who had been turned away by everyone else, and when he tried ether during a surgery, the patient apparently woke up afterwards and asked when the operation was going to start. 
This is the guy that lost the nut. (laughs) (laughs) He gave Ether his blessing, and with a seal of approval from a towering figure such as him, its use became widespread. Liston brand Ether. Yeah. You huff it. It's a bad quote, but (laughs) we're working on it. Marketing's on it. So the second problem with surgery was the infections. And while Ignaz Semmelweis gave it a shot, the guy to make it stick was Joseph Lister, who experimented with dipping tools and gauze pads in carbolic acid to kill animalcules. (laughs) So Semmelweis was a clerk with little clout. So he was laughed out of the medical profession and died beaten to death in an insane asylum. Lister, however, had already made a name for himself, so he managed to get the idea to stick in 1865, though it would would be another 80 years or so until the medical community got the hang of anesthetics and antiseptics. Waste of time. (laughs) Sometimes. And that was the last of the stories that I had. I I watched a surgery once. Did you? Yeah, for our anatomy class, we got to go watch open heart surgery. Oh, wow. For a day. Uh, It was very fascinating. I saw two wieners that day. <laughs> One was mine. Yep. <laughs> like, hey, hey, doctor, what do you think? <laughs> no, see, it, was, it was just, uh, I saw two open heart surgeries. And they went in through the wiener? <laughs> well, the guy's naked on the table. Oh. They put antiseptic all over them, which kind of makes like make, makes it look like they're putting a guy in blackface, but let's... <laughs> uh, and they kind of made like a, a slushy out of his chest cavity and stopped the heart and then just had a machine circulating the blood. Oh, yeah. Weird. <laughs> Like, they, they put, like, it looked like they were make, making him a Hawaiian shave ice. <laughs> <laughs> like, they cracked him up and was like, pet, 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 ah, I love the snow. And made it rainbow colors. Mm-hmm. And, like, they bring you into the room and the anesthesiologist is like, and this one does this. And he injected into the IV. I was like, crazy. Oh what was this for? Uh, anatomy class in high school. Huh. Wow. I've seen lots of animal surgeries. <laughs> yeah. Kelly and I grew up in, in vet clinics, so we've seen a, a great many surgeries. Yeah, we're kind of immune to blood and gore as a result. (laughs) It is interesting, though, just because, I mean, as long as you don't cut anything too important and you keep things clean, nothing else really matters. Like, to do animal surgery, a lot of times they, like, cut open the animal and they just, like, scoop everything out and set it on a table next to the animal. And then, like, once everything's nice and spread out, they work on whatever part they need to. And then they just kind of smoosh it back in there and stitch it all back up. And it's fine. Hmm. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Anybody uh, ever been in surgery? I have. Yeah? Yeah. You had your appendix out. I had my appendix out, yeah. It was uh, pretty uneventful. Yeah. Um, That's I went. <laughs> I went in. They, you know, decided it needed to come out. I don't even remember like a count backward from or anything like yeah. that. I remember being introduced to the anesthesiologist and then I was in an elevator asking where Sean was, which was my first question upon coming coming to. Where is Sean? He was uh, waiting in the room. I had my wisdom teeth out, which I got to experience anesthesia then. Yeah. Which was, they're, they're like, count backwards. I said, my arm feels like it's been in an ice. <laughs> <laughs> Those weren't numbers. Try again. <laughs> wake up, wake up. <laughs> I want to hear you say it. All of it. <laughs> when I was a kid, I was about four. I was messing around on my uncle's motorcycle and it wasn't going anywhere. It was just parked, but I managed to tip it over and I fell off first, and then the handlebar of the motorcycle punched a neat hole right through my foot. Ah. <laughs> and so I was rushed to the hospital. And I don't really remember much about the event, but I do remember going into surgery. And like I was on a table, 
and there was like five or six people around me and they put the mask over my mouth and they said, count backwards from 10. And I said, 10. And then all of the people, but one disappeared. And I said, nine. And then that last person's body disappeared and they were just a head. I said, eight. And their head duplicated into multiple heads. <laughs> I said, seven. And the head started to spin around and around. And then I passed out. Screaming. With <laughs> <laughs> Forked tongues and flaming eyes. <laughs> the ritual is complete. <laughs> what hospital did they take you to? <laughs> All we needed was the boy of hold foot counting backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and I also remember one time me and Kelly were visiting Reno to catch up with people. And we'd been hanging out with Andy and we were going to hang out with my mom. So we went to the vet clinic that she works at. And I was like, is my mom around? Like, oh yeah, she's back in surgery. Just go back there. And the three of us went back there. And then I was like, oh, hey mom. And she's like, oh, hey, I'm almost done. And there's this dog with just like bits all over the place and blood. And we start discussing what we want to have for lunch because that's what we were going to do next. I was like, we could do Carl's Jr. It's like, no, I just had Carl's Jr. Let's say maybe something else. And then I turn around and Andy is like pressed into the corner and white as a sheet. (laughs) I was like, maybe we should continue this conversation when you're done. Casual conversation about the dead dog on the team. (laughs) No, it was about lunch. Weren't you paying attention? (laughs) Huh? No, I, I can do any amount of gore in, in fiction or movies. The second you're like, hey, check this out. I'm like, Bleh. It's a splinter. It's fake and it's real. All right. Well, if no one has any more personal stories, we'll move on to no. what are your morals worth? What? The answer is no to whatever you're just about to ask. <laughs> so there's something wrong with you. Let's say you've got a gallbladder that needs to be removed and you're going to go into surgery. You can have either anesthetics or antiseptics <laughs> which do you pick God. and how much will i need to pay you to go through with this antiseptics three million dollars wow. it's gonna be anesthetics yeah i'd rather survive i'd rather not feel it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i want antiseptics but i want all the money yeah i want i want anesthetics and the cleanest doctor you have <laughs> <laughs> that's dr junk rat <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this this is getting into the I would never do it range of money. Like, oh, yeah. I'm talking like $500 billion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. find me someone who will pay me that and we'll, we'll talk. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of in the neighborhood. If you, you'd you have to pay me for both of them anyways. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the gallbladder, is the gallbladder way in there? I think it's relatively close to the surface. I'm not positive, though. Chop, chop. <laughs> scream scream let's say outside that it's all regular stuff like they can do it with a less what is it laparoscope but stuff's still gonna be going in oh man yeah i can't i don't think i can say no to the antiseptic i think i have to go with the antiseptic but the thing about pain is it doesn't stick <laughs> like it sucks in the moment but afterwards you, it's it's hard to remember that so I really just have to get through the moment. It's like they say in Roadhouse, pain don't hurt. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if Patrick Swayze is a doctor. <laughs> uh, he takes that guy's throat out. <laughs> I mean, without the without the anesthetic, I'm probably going to pass out anyways. That's true. But I don't want I don't want to feel that much pain where I pass out. Yeah. The thing is, I've been through a couple things. Like, I had a tooth removed where they didn't do a very good job of numbing it. And an eye cut open. Yeah, and a sty removal where they did a 
shitty job of numbing it. So it's like, I feel like I have at least a little bit of concept for the pain, but man, yeah, that's rough. I think I would, how many years would I need to take off work? All of them. <laughs> $3 million. Oh man. I, I think I could, I think I could do it for five years. Let's call it 500,000. I'm, I'm going to want $2 million. $2 million? Yeah. Spend that money fighting the infections. Yeah. Yeah. Invest in a lot of antibiotics. The, the best homeopathics you can have. When I walk into that room, all of those tools better be in Barbasol. <laughs> all right. I think that's all we've got for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks to my co-hosts for joining me today. Thanks to Gerard, our awesome editor. And thanks to you for tuning in. If you'd like more information about today's episode, check out our website at acidpoppodcast.podbean.com. You can join us on our subreddit, Acid Pop Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Acid Pop Podcast for updates almost every month. Or you can send us an email at acidpoppodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Try our listen guarantee. Yeah, you need jingle. 30 seconds or it's free. (laughs) Nice.